Welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest is Luca Braconier, or Figure 31, an NFT artist. We will discuss his work and his perspective on the NFT space. So Luca, welcome to the uh, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. I'm real delighted. Uh, I think your work is really fascinating, and uh, I've enjoyed checking it out on OpenSea and other platforms. Before we start talking about your work in the digital art and NFT space, maybe you could tell listeners a little bit about yourself, who you are, and what you did before you got interested in in NFTs. Yeah, well, um, I studied photography since I was, I don't know, like about 15 years old. And then I went on to study cinema and uh, media studies, which was really like multi-phase. Uh, we were learning how to make movies, but also how to analyze the, the media landscape. And that was pretty cool. And then I moved on to visual and media arts, and I was working parallel to that in fashion. So uh, I, work, I work as a stylist and just like all over administrative and just coordination stuff in that space. And then I moved on to visual and media arts. And while I was doing that, I was also uh, being a studio assistant for a, a painter slash contemporary artist in Montreal. His name was Nicolas Grenier. And I was his studio assistant and research assistant, which was like a really incredible experience. And at the time, I was, uh, was being asked to do research on alternative economies, uh, which is like a super wide question. And it was basically like, find me anything and make me a report on like how people can exchange different things when they're not using fiat. It was like either time, either simply exchanging objects or exchanging like uh, different services or whatever. And that of course led me to cryptocurrencies. And at the time I didn't have with my parents um, uh, like a, a university fund for like when I'll be studying and paying apartment and stuff. So uh, as a joke, when Bitcoin was like, it's like the pre 20K pump, I was just sending them a text message each time Bitcoin doubled in price. So I was going to say like, oh, if we invested uh, like a hundred dollars would be 200 now and 400 and whatever. And I kept doing that until it crashed. And it was kind of funny. And I was looking at the space with like from a diagonal point of view. And eventually because of that uh, assistant studio, uh, studio assistant work, I sort of got into crypto, started trading. I followed the uh, FTX and Alameda research, everything they were doing, started to, participate in a few training competition. It was just like for fun and like pure, like just receiving a shit ton of information. It was like really amazing. And then eventually shifted toward DeFi and now, uh, well, of course, NFTs. But during that sort of transition between DeFi and NFTs, I participate. I participated in different projects, helping here and there in the background, uh, just helping with like designing ODs or whatever, really. And eventually, I don't know if you remember it, but there was this project, like, I think it was like eight months ago, but it feels like two years now. <laughs> it was uh, the non-fungible Pepe's. It was um, like, you know, they were they were taking like a Pepe picture, transforming them into like a pixelated artwork. And they were like the first, as far as I remember them, they were the first NFTs to be sold for like 100K. And at the time, it was, it was like really, really fucking amazing. And it started to make headlines and whatever. And at some point, they did an open call for artists. They were like, oh, uh, 
you can give us 11 images. We'll let you keep one and then we'll sell 10. And whatever, whatever happens after that, then we'll reward you for your time or whatever. But actually I posted the, I sent them the pictures. I got accepted and legit two weeks after that, they got sued or like, I don't know exactly what happened on the legal front, but basically they got blocked from like the original Pepe creator. So that project went down the gutter. Um, and at the time I was, uh, I was studying photography. I had like a contemporary photography class. It was basically just like working with images in 2020 and my teacher were really open to do anything. And so I started to work on an NFT project and eventually starting to hit different people in the space, uh, try to make something on Solana, try to make it on Ethereum, hit a bunch of different devs. It was like a really cumbersome process. And eventually I found Trent from JPEG and he, I told him about my idea and we sort of work and it'll be okay, we're launching a platform. I think we have a perfect match. He hooked me up with uh, Owen from OXMON and then, you know, we really salt and whatever. And then I've been doing stuff on my own since then. Well, maybe we could take a little bit of a step back and you could talk about getting interested in, in DeFi. What do you mean by that? What were you doing? And how did that lead to an interest in NFTs? Well, let's say like before DeFi, like what you could do is like you trade altcoins, shitcoins and BTC Ethereum with either leverage or not. That's your, that's the, the trader's discretion. But uh, it was like basically the space was that like, you know, there was a couple of NFT projects, but they weren't known. It was like uh, archaeology. You know, you found one. It was like a, mostly a joke. It wasn't taken seriously, at least from my perspective. And DeFi, it was like, it was really interesting because it was sort of an aesthetic aspect to DeFi with different like 90s aesthetic and just like kind of being, just being funny or like the classic, you know, Yam Farms from, I think like Trent worked on that. And I know it, it sort of like attracted a lot of creative people. And that was really, really new. And it has like really vibrant energy. And this space, like, I mean, on, on Twitter, on crypto Twitter, like people started to gather around projects. And it's sort of like we were just doing hops, like a huge part of the community paid attention to this and then it was to that. And then we just shifted to our new project and eventually got more complex and it started really getting interesting. It was just so much more creative than simply like looking at at an order book all day and trying to trade different trends, which was, you know, I loved it because of the, I was in school and I was pretty bored by my teacher and the content in class. And then like, it was just so much fun trading, but then it was relatively easy and I didn't I needed money because I was a student and I was just really interested in that. What kind of projects were you trading in? I mean, what did they look like? And when you made decisions about how to trade, like what were you looking to? What what was driving your sort of trading activity and, and how did you think about the activity you were doing in the hope of being successful? I guess I can like put it in perspective to like what I was doing in art school, which is like, you know, when you're an artist you have a certain relationship to to time. And it's very much like you you take time off, you work on something, you do a lot of research, you develop your own practice. And shifting to trading was like purely trying to understand the trend and understanding what the market is telling you and just dealing with different information feeds. And I guess it was just so different than what I was doing. It was really fun. And I was just trading major coins, so Bitcoin, Ethereum, and uh, you know just a classic and a bunch of altcoins here and there. But yeah, I guess it's just like the the big difference between being in art and being in trading 
I was really attracted to that. And it was, uh, at the time, I couldn't really talk about it because it wasn't like well perceived in art school if you were into anything financial. So I was sort of hiding it, but some of my close friends knew about it. And I knew it was like, I mean, from an, like, an intellectual perspective, trading is very, very intense and very rewarding, but it's sort of like a dead end. Cause like, yes, you trade and you make money or whatever or not and you lose. And it's very uh, sentimentally, um, I don't know, exigent, sorry about that. <laughs> but it was very different than what I was doing. And just that was enough to like put me back in a good mental space to go back and make art. So talk a little bit about your transition then in, in thinking NFTs. Like when you first started thinking about getting into that space, what kind of work were you looking at that was interesting to you or that was making you think about the projects that you would want to be engaging in? And then when you first started making work yourself in that space, kind of how did you conceptualize what it was you wanted to do and why? Yeah, um, actually, when like about like six, seven months ago, when the space started to grow and being more popularized, there wasn't much to look at, quite honestly. I don't want, maybe it's just I wasn't aware of different projects that existed, but honestly, there wasn't much. And so it was more about making a point you can use these tools and this media to do something interesting. It was really about proving a point and to do something radically different than just putting a JPEG online. And that was really like the, the first intention. And I think my inspiration were really from like conceptual art and different uh, contemporary photographers or certain painters and sculptors. But yeah, I, I just feel like there's a really great renaissance of uh, conceptual art through NFTs and in this space. And it's been really amazing to see it happen. So maybe you could talk then a little bit about your own initial projects? Like, how did you approach them? How did you kind of conceptualize what it was you wanted them to do? And how did you go about realizing that vision? Uh, so I can start with the first, which was uh, Salt with JPEG. And at the beginning, the idea was to have something that would continuously evolve. Because uh, we know when you post something on the blockchain, the idea is that it stays there forever. That it's going to be the same thing. And if I post an image, it's going to be the same image in 100 years, except, of course, if the file somehow gets corrupted, but that goes against the logic of the blockchain. So my idea was that we would have code that would iterate the images each time they are transacted or in any way someone interacts with the image. And it would continuously be like more and more corrupted as time will evolve. And that was sort of uh, conceptually linked to the image themselves. And we tried a different ways to, to do that. And it was just not possible. So we ended up like changing the concept with uh, Owen and he found like really clever solutions to that problem. And so eventually it was just like image involved, evolving in a cycle. Because, you know, if if I go to a museum and I try to look at a painting from the 15th century, it's very different. I mean, physically, how it is now than how it was back then. Like the paint, like the crust on the painting, maybe dust, maybe light, like uh, contaminated it. And maybe there's like different cracks on it. I was just interested in replicating that online to create a parallel between the physical and the digital. It was a really simple idea, but actually very hard to make it happen in real life. <laughs> I mean, and to this day, impossible. I'm still looking for a way to do it. Yeah. And for Liam, it was just about, uh, I was really inspired actually by like, uh, by what Def Beef is doing, 
with like having all of the code on chain and that you can recreate it afterwards. And through my experience with Salt and trying to find a dev and trying to find a platform to host the project and just myself trying to understand how this files, file storage works, I realized that like all of these barriers, they were really, um, somehow they, they changed the, the propos, like the, what you were saying as an artist, it changed a lot. And it's like you start with a potato and then you end up with mashed potatoes mixed with fucking mayonnaise and like a bunch of different herbs. And it was, I find that really, uh, it, it sort of made me sad. So I, I did a project that was like, you could like the, um, the we have this, I think the smallest denominator for the project was the name. So you could use the name to recreate the artwork. And I used the cheapest method of file storage with and uh, the worst way if you want to post a project on the blockchain, which was OpenSea Shared Storefront, which is like the most revered way to post a project if you're for collectors who know anything about file storage and uh, smart contracts. And it was just basically the name itself would allow you to recreate the artwork. So I had this concept and I was looking for like uh, source images. And eventually I remember when I studied cinema, I watched this movie called uh, Last Year at Marienbad, which is a movie from Alain René, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, I think that's what it is. And uh, in this movie, there's like a lot of gaps and a lot of like really strange things that happens. And there's a like, different relationship to time and like to is something happening or is it just the, the character that imagines it? And I, it's sort of this uh, dialogue between time and imagination and memory. I just found it really interesting to apply it to like a, a certain file storage, if you want, uh, project. So it's sort of my answer to what DevBeef and other people have been doing and on how they store their project online. And it's not, I did it with respect. It's not like an attack on anyone. Yeah, and so that's a pretty large number of images in that project, and they're all highly abstracted. Like, how did you choose how many additions to include in the series? And what was the process of abstraction that you used? So actually, uh, every image is uh, one frame from a different from a different uh, scene. So uh, I think we, I think you call them a frame in English. We call them a plan in French. So like there's three. Uh, there's about I think I, I've been precise, but I may have missed one or two. So there are 340 different frames in all of the the movie. So it's one image per frame actually. So each time the camera moves, I took a screenshot of the movie. And then through different like compressing and decompressing processes and inverting the colors and changing the, the the image quality, you get these like, the thing is when you take an image and then you compress it and decompress it, the interpolation algorithm, imagine, I like to say imagine, but it isn't conscience, conscience of course. It's like, it's, it's, a, it's just an algorithm. I like to say that it imagine uh, different textures. So it creates the void in a way. So let's say you start with like a, a 1000 by 3000 image and then you crop it down to like 10 by 30. And then you want to like make it bigger again. Well, it has to recreate the information that isn't there. And that's where in my work, all the magic happens. It's just, I, I do the different things where I ask, I just make the computer do things that it isn't supposed to do. And whenever I do that, there's always something interesting. So the images in salt are also highly abstracted and have a real rich kind of deep coloration and almost kind of photomechanical feel to them. 
how did how did you create those? What was the process like, and why did that strike you as the kind of the right kind of image to use for that project? Mm, that, that's super interesting. Actually, I think uh, to this day, the style that I've used for salt is still something that I feel very, very much uh, related to as an artist, and I really love it. And I'm gonna keep pursuing that avenue. But basically, uh, a couple of years ago, I think I, I talked about that uh, once a while back. But I dropped my camera on the floor and the lens broke so I couldn't focus with it so it was always like a out of focus and at the time I didn't have any money I was an artist I was kind of broke so I just kept on using that lens on the camera and I discovered a new style which you can put in different perspective uh it, it has similarities with different contemporary photographers and painters but basically I was walking around at night and I was taking pictures of like a back alleys and those back alleys didn't have any direct light coming to the camera. So it's all secondary light. And then I take a picture of that, but it's very, very, very underexposed. And because the image are out of focus, you only get these like rich, uh, raw textures that I, after that I go into the studio and I sort of enhance them with different post-production tools. So in the end, it's more like the, the, it's the structure of the image inside the camera. It's the sensor itself that you see on those images. What about that image, kind of the process of creating those images or the way the images kind of ended up looking after you had processed them made it feel like the appropriate style to use for that particular project? Oh, a um, couple of years ago, when I started to work on that style, I did a different experiment and I just, I, I tried to print them. I tried to project them. I tried to expose them on screen. I did like a bunch of different experiments and I just realized that this very digital quality. And I, when I studied photography, I did both like a dark room and digital photography and they're very, very different practices. And, you know, there's this thing in um, darkroom photography for like basically film photography. People love the grain of the image because they love like the texture and they love the old look and whatever. And I was interested in like the complete opposite. I was interested in ISO and ISO is basically like the, we call it noise in, in digital photography. So it's just like the sensor trying to show you information and there's a structure behind it. And I was trying to, was looking for that structure, trying to understand it and trying to shine it through the, the image. And yeah, I guess it, it just evolved from that first iteration, like that first mistake I did with the camera. And it just allowed me to explore that. And they look so good on screen. <laughs> I was like printing them became a sort of, it became a mistake to print them because it didn't make any sense because they're natively digital and they're about something that is digital, the camera and the digital camera in very precisely. And when I printed them, I lost like the quality of the pixels that was really bright and that really came to you on the screen. It sort of worked when I projected them, but the screen was just so bright that I, I was afraid to lose something when I print. And even if I had access to like really high quality printers and if I, yeah, I tried like using light box and different things, but it was never the same as the screen. And they're sort of very vibrant. And even if you see them on a phone, it still works. So I was really happy about that. It's funny because I hear a lot of people who work in traditional photochemical media say the, say the same thing about translating their work to a digital frame where they feel like 
the the texture and the quality of the image on the on the digital screen doesn't capture the quality of the grain and the texture of the image that they're so interested in. And it's, it's interesting to hear you say the same thing about the qualities of the innately digital information produced by the sensor. Yeah, absolutely. And also the other thing is uh, when you're working digitally, you can deal with a lot of files. You can deal with a lot of, uh, with a big series of minute of images and you can publish them quite easily. You can work on them in batches. And that's like, from the point of view of an artist who want to like join the most people out there, that is just uh, reach the most people. Sorry, it's just it's just incredible because let's just say you want to publish a hundred images, trying to print a hundred images in a dark room, it is so much fucking work, and it was just excruciate. Sorry, it was just awful. Like and when I worked in a dark room, I just hated it so much. I worked in those dark rooms for like hours and days, and I couldn't do it. So I'd rather be on a screen. And just being able to reach as many people as I can through that. And which just from that aspect of simply reaching people, I think it's worth it. There's also something interesting about the way you talk about the natively digital image that you are using and translating the meaning that the sensor was trying to generate, as it were, in connection with the way that you're using the the code of the, 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 you know, the kind of internal language of the NFTs to produce an unusual mode of representation and a kind of like to, to play with what our understanding of an NFT is supposed to be doing, because it seems very different in a lot of ways than the way other NFTs are structured, where you have a fixed image and, here, as I understand it, you're using the code to actually modify the image over time. Yeah, that's that's. I think that's the ultimate goal. It's like, but it, it's all drawn from like the real a, a real artwork. Where if you like, if you go to Sierra Dine today, it's different than how it was when he made it. It's like there's a rain that fell on it. There's the dust. There's the the every I don't know, just the the smoke in the air. Anything. It just it corrupts the artwork and it corrupts the message. And in my work, usually I try to understand how technology corrupts the message or how it, it influences it. And in my opinion, it's not necessarily a bad thing. It's a human thing. It's just that with salt, for example, it's like it's a straight conduit from, from the outside world to the screen of the other person, to the person's eye. Like the image starts when I take it in the street and then it goes in the camera and then it goes in my computer and eventually it goes online and then it's on the different screen. But I think it's sort of answered, but I'm not sure exactly uh, how to tackle this uh, specific point. But yeah, um, I just like the straight conduit thing. I think it's interesting. And to play with like, even if it's a straight conduit, there's still corruption. And if I can make you think as a viewer about your own relationship to the digital, uh, purely like a file or an image and whatever, I think I've done a great job as an artist. It just makes you question that relation to the digital. Like, is it real? Is it fake? Is it imagined? Uh, whatever. Just just trying to put that in perspective. Why did you choose the name Salt for the project? Oh, <laughs> that's kind of a funny story. Um, at the time, when I was looking for a name and it, it took a while. Like, it, it, we got the name like pretty dialed in like at the end. Um I just had some salt on my counter and I was looking at it. And then I looked into like the process behind how you make salt. 
And it was this great documentary that I found. And, you know, you have to let like a uh, water dry for like many weeks outside in different fields. And people have to maintain these fields. They have to work them. They have to like, they have to take care of them. And it's just like the, the, the process of making salt and the process of these images and the final output in purely in terms of aesthetics and of uh, visuals, it somehow felt like dried out salt in different ways. And also like they have a really like a very densely packed pixelated um, textures on these images. And that somehow resonated with salt. How is the project received? Like what kind of feedback have you gotten from collectors, from people who've helped you get the project, you know, into, into the world and, you know, generally from what you've seen, people talking about it and responding to it? Oh, it's been quite awesome, to be honest. Like, I, I thought I would get a bit more hate because I was doing non-figurative works. And I sort of hoped for it to get a bit of, uh, I don't know, a bit of beef with someone. I, I was just waiting for that. And you, and I haven't had any. So people have been very receptive. And I've been so impressed by how receptive and how touched people are by anything that is a bit conceptual and that tries to just be think a bit out of the box in terms of like simply uploading an image or a file online. And I'm really surprised and happy about that. Like the, the space is so open to different conceptual avenues. If you're an artist, it's like the perfect time to be a conceptual artist. And I was always interested in those practices when I was in art school. But the thing is in real life, if you want to be a conceptual artist, like trying to sell your work is going to be so hard it's like, is it even, is it even worth it to sell it or to expose it? Because usually a conceptual art is sort of a bad joke or it's sort of something that makes you think. And most of the time, galleries, museums, yes, they want you, they want to make you think, but they say I have to pay rent and they still have to like attract people. So trying to be too conceptual, it, it won't work. And so it's somehow salt strikes a balance between visually interesting and conceptually interesting. And I've been able to show this work to like totally non-initiated people um, in NFT space and in art space. And they sort of got the gist of it somehow. So in your experience, has the NFT space enabled you to find or participate in the creation of a market for artwork that wouldn't otherwise have had a market? and to work in ways that you wouldn't have been able to otherwise? Oh, absolutely. 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 Totally. There are like, I have like, I have a library full of sketchbooks, a project that would be like almost impossible to do in real life. Or it would, it, it wouldn't make sense to spend time working on those things because like the, the, I say the physical, but it's more than that. It's like the social context, like the administrative context of working with a gallery or with a museum or with any institution. It's so heavy on many different fronts. And the way things are, uh, the way things work here, where I'm from in Montreal, Quebec, uh, you have to work with the public sector. And that comes with a lot of restraints. But I, I see them as restraint, but others see them as good things. And it usually, like, those constraints are so... Well, they format the artwork and being able to just post something online, it allows for so much freedom. Yes, you have the limitation of the smart contract and solidity language. But other than that, there's so much more freedom here. And I, I just think as an artist, it's a blessing. 
what kind of projects do you see coming up next? Like what plans do you have for future work in the NFT space? I, I really think that there's something to be done with uh, space and manufacturing of digital uh, products. I mean, products, I'm saying this like, a, I don't want to, it's not like financial product. It's mostly like, I mean, industrial design, but in a virtual sense. I think there's really something to be done there. And there's something to be done for conceptual works or just, if I leak too much thing, I'm going to be mad at myself afterwards. So I'm going to try to restrain a bit what I'm saying. But um, anything that involves other people participating in your work. Because, you know, with Salt, basically every collector shares the collection. It's kind of hard to pinpoint what do you own in that collection. You simply own a window and it's just everyone owns the same window in a different sense. So anything that is collaborative in terms of ownership that tries to defy the simple ownership of one thing, I think there's so much potential for that in the space and collaborative and just being able to, the simple fact that online you can join join many people with a very simple action of posting something, that is so powerful from an artist's perspective. Because, you know, we, let's just say with Salt, we sold about like 200 artworks in an hour. Doing that in real life, absolutely impossible in Montreal. Like it would have taken me two years, even more. And that's just amazing. Like you get to reach people and they're in a very, very uh, close contact with your artwork. They have them on their phone. They have them on their computer. They look at them every day because simply, even if they only care about the financial aspect of it, they're still in contact every day with your artwork. And I can go to a museum and say the same thing about Rodin or any painter out there, like even if Jackson Pollock to be really corny. And But that like very close relationship to the artwork and the commun- community aspect and the social aspect, I think that's very, very interesting. That's why I think objects and space, there is something to explore in that. And I briefly studied industrial design and I'm trying to like reel in different architects and uh, industrial designer into NFTs and crypto art. But it's been really hard because they're so busy, these people. It's incredible. Do you think your own experiences in DeFi informed the way you thought about approaching your work in NFTs? And to what extent do you think other people with a background in DeFi are sort of attracted to the NFT market? So are there connections between the two? And are there things about the NFT market that make it sort of even more fun in the way that you describe the DeFi market being fun? There's this adjective that people throw around, like gamified finance. And now it's like gamified artworks in a way, because the way they are traded and the way people interact on crypto Twitter. But for sure, I think that the energy we found during the first DeFi summer, you can find it again in NFT. That I'm I'm 100% sure about it. And many of the actors who were involved in DeFi are also involved in a way or another in um, NFTs. And my, I mean, I don't have a specific theory about that. Maybe it's simply because everything happens on Twitter and people share it through that. And it's the same Discord servers and it's the same Telegram groups. But the simple fact that like a project requires people's attention on social media, it redirects the gaze towards something. And DeFi was very like innovative in that sense that it 
different project managed to get everyone's attention because it was an event. So it's like art as an event, but then it's finance as an event. And that was really interesting. Well, so Luca, in, in closing, I wonder if you could kind of reflect on the NFT market as a whole, you know, kind of based on your experiences coming into that market, participating in it, seeing it the way it is now, does it seem like one big market with lots of different kind of genres or does it seem to you like many different markets with people coming in from different places and doing things that are kind of more fundamentally different in terms of their goals and, 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 and processes. I think I'm going to answer that the way I talk about, I introduce the NFT market to different people that aren't aware of anything cryptocurrency related. It's like, if you go to a museum, if you go to a gallery in a very tourist center part of town, or if you go to a gallery, an underground gallery in like an industrial part of town, you get all these different faces of what art is. And if you go online, you get a different face of it. And the NFT space is exactly the same. But I'm very cautious when I say that as a contemporary artist, I work with NFTs because I don't want to bash on other projects out there. But most of the time, if you're like anything interested in fine arts and you're trying to apply what you've learned to NFTs, there's a huge chunk of what the NFT market is that you'll have to forget that it exists in order to create and not feel corrupted in your work in a different way. But it is multi-phase and that is both is both good and bad. It's just, I mean, at the end of the day, NFT is just a media and artists forever have been working with different media and they make all the, I mean, they make the best and the worst out of it. So it's really up to different artists. I mean, there's really no limit towards that. And it, the way I see it, it's just a new media. And it's as simple as that. There is no one face. Amazing. Well, Luca, I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to me today. And I learned a lot from your perspective. And it's really great to hear from yet another artist sort of finding their way through this new and exciting space. Well, thanks a lot. It was a pleasure.